listening to the Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We are your hosts. I am Michael Clary, and with me is Wade Thomas. Both of us are on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. If you would like to ask a question or give any feedback, you can reach us at currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com, and we typically answer questions from listeners at the end of every episode. We are recording this episode live at the King's Domain Conference that is hosted by our church in Cincinnati. We're joined today by two of the speakers at the conference, Chase Davis and Josh Dawes. We'll let them introduce themselves to you as we move forward. But before I do that, I want to share a little bit of listener feedback. I got an email this week that was really encouraging to me. The email says this, I started following Michael on Twitter and that led me to the podcast. I devoured all your content thus far and found it to be both encouraging and enlightening and filled with godly truth, which I desperately need to hear. What a lifeline your podcast has been. Super encouraging. That made my day when I read that. I shared that with Wade. I sent that one. Oh, you sent that? Oh, well, I guess never mind. No. JK. (laughs) No, no, it's it's really encouraging to hear from people like that. So, uh, Wade, I want to kick it over to you to get us going. What do you got for us today? Okay, so today's episode, like Michael said, we are uh, here live at the conference. With that being the case, let me just spend a minute telling you what the podcast is. Uh, current reality is Mike, Michael and I both had similar trajectories, uh, we're both big fans of Tim Keller, both uh, sort of in the Young Restless Reformed movement, and then both uh, maybe slightly different times began to realize, wait a minute, this thing is really deficient in its ability to uh, address the issues of, that, that are actually ravaging real human beings in America. And so as we realized that, we looked around and we're like, but nobody else seems to we can't find anybody who agrees with us. And so this podcast is a way to tell conservative, Bible-believing Christians, you're not crazy. As you listen to this, and we identify things like CRT and uh, the, the sexual revolution, uh, we've got the episode called the LGBTQIA plus family tree. Um, that was one of my favorites. I still don't know what all of those letters stand for, but I don't need to. Oh, we got one coming out this week, which I guess will be out already by the whatever makes mama happy whatever Uh, makes mama happy which is not how you should live your life or have a marriage and so (laughs) uh so that's what the podcast does today we're gonna uh take advantage of the fact that we have chase and josh here uh i'd love for you guys in just a second to tell us a little bit about yourselves each of you but these guys are uh from from what i have gathered i I met chase at an x29 conference josh i've listened to great awakening you guys are very good at identifying trends um, and, and the impact of ideas and maybe even seeing what's coming before the average Christian can see it. So I'd love to talk those things through. What do you see coming uh, and how do we prepare for it? But first, if, if you guys can each just tell us a little bit about yourselves and uh, your ministries. Sure. My name is Chase Davis. I'm a pastor at the Well Church in Boulder, Colorado, a church we planted 11 years ago, 12 years ago now, uh, host of a podcast called Full Proof Theology. I uh, live in Boulder County. I have two kids and one on the way. Hey, and I am Josh Dawes. I am uh, not a pastor. I am the host of the Great Awakening podcast. Best podcast name ever. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Um, So yeah, it's a podcast that's just trying to help uh, equip the church, help Christians understand the crazy time we're living through and how we should respond to it. Awesome. Okay, so um, 
most of us here, I would imagine, are parents. Uh, you guys have done a great job in your podcasts, and Jason, uh, you're like writing ministry and preaching ministry, what I know of The Well does. How do we keep our kids? So if I've got, I've got six kids, Michael's got four, one who's headed off to college, Josh, you've got four, Chase, you've got two. Did I remember right? You have four. They're going to go out into a world uh, in which it's totally common for somebody to just find a TikTok video of a guy saying that he's now a woman and what his next operation is going to cost and how he's going to, how do we keep our kids in that sort of environment? What strategies, what, what do we need to do to prepare them? Well, it's not just TikTok. This past week, um, one of, if your kids are on YouTube, they've probably seen Mr. Beast or uh, seen some of his videos. Uh, his co-host came out as, um, says he's a woman now, and um, he was married with a baby. And so it's, it, it's not just, um, you know, kids stumbling around on um, TikTok and, and social media, it's in the entertainment that they're consuming. You know, it's not like when we were kids and we're watching G.I. Joe and there's a very set, you know, formula to that show that every week you know what you're going to get. You know, these YouTube channels drift over time. You know, just because, you know, Dude Perfect is, is wholesome right now doesn't mean it will be a year from now when they get bored and, <laughs> you know, start going into other things. I think they're all solid. I love Dude Perfect. Um, but, you know, guys like Mr. Beast, it's such a free-form thing. And this is the content our kids are watching mm -hmm. that you can't just, like, watch one episode and say, yeah, that's, that's good. That's wholesome stuff because it may not stay there. So we, we don't even have the internet at my house. Uh, we're basically Mennonite. Uh, <laughs> do, do you have to go to that extreme or uh, it, what about some of us are going to have kids. Mine's, my oldest is 11. Uh, she's 13. She's 14. Does she, would you recommend not having mobile devices, not having uh, computers in the bedroom? Like what, what are some ways that we can avoid this technology poison? Your kids are what my, my sons are nine and seven. So yeah, their friends all have phones on the block, and my sons will not. Uh, now, I'm not in the position you guys are at where they're at that age where that social pressure is in that high demand, but my wife and I are very aligned. I'm like, there's just no need. I mean, we can figure out a way to get around it, mm -hmm. but I'm like you, I'm like, I'd, if the options are do that yeah. or give them an iPhone, I'd rather do that. Yeah. Like, that's gonna guard their heart. I mean, I, knew, I grew up in the age of the internet where we still had the, the computer in the family room, but, um, but yeah, I want none of that for my sons. That's, there's just so much pollution. Like Josh was saying, um, you can't assume the best of what they're consuming. Yeah. And so we, you know, it's funny, I grew up and uh, my mom was very strict on what we were able to watch. So I, I remember, uh, do y'all remember the show Rugrats? That Rugrats. was a show, oh, yeah, yeah, growing up. And so my mom one day decided, I guess she had heard at Bible study, that the kids are super rebellious in Rugrats. And so one day my mom came out and was like, no more Rugrats. And me and my brothers were like, wait, what? You know, like, what's going on? Whenever I was a kid, it was the Simpsons. Yeah, the Simpsons, yeah. Like, do you hear the way Bart Simpson talks to his father? Right. So disrespectful. So disrespectful. And so the Simpsons were, like, big-time controversial yeah. in the church. We watch Andy Griffith show DVDs at my house. <laughs> you are <amazing>. Good man. <laughs> I think that's great. Like I, but now I'm, I'm, be, uh, you know, being a parent. Now I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna be that way. Like I'm, I would rather be more guarded, yeah. you know, than than this this other option. Especially as the like that growing up, whether it was Simpsons or Rugrats, those are uh, 
uh, you know, examples of a certain cultural time, mm -hmm. and now the de degeneracy has escalated so greatly with Mr. Beast and that kind of thing that, you know, my kids aren't going to, I'm like, there's not a world in my home in which they will live where it's like, yeah, go turn on YouTube. Like, that's never going to be a thing that I say to them uh, as if it's a good, you know, platform that they can just consume. Yeah. Unless I know what, what's going on in the episode, what they're watching. Mm -hmm. I, I, with my kids, there's a, like, we kind of have things on a dimmer switch. Um, there's the, what's the thing in the Amish world whenever... Is it room? Oh, you get to go out for like a week and see if you want to really live. Like is it a week or is it a year? I don't know. I can't remember. Uh, well, it's, it, it ain't gonna be a year in my house. <laughs> but it's like they have this thing. It's like okay, you're raised in this Amish tradition, and then now okay, go out, see the world, and then decide if you want to, you know, be a, be a part of the Amish community. And I think that's it's a bit of a it's it's a shocking sort of thing to the system, and kids just go off the deep end. Um, so in, in my family, like we 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 try to hold hold off as long as we can every next step of technology use that we know they will eventually need to, to be able to interact with. So social media is a tool, the internet is a tool, smartphones are a tool, but tools can be used for good or bad reasons. And so with social media, whenever, whenever we first allowed them to have phones, it was just, uh, it was like an iPod. There was no data plan. Um, and then whenever they start my two oldest are driving now. When they're driving, you can get a data plan uh, so that way we can stalk you on Life360 and know where you are at every given moment. What is Life360? Life, we've talked about this. I know, but I already forget. Okay, Life360 is basically um, a parental surveillance big brother tool. <laughs> it's an app that you downloaded your phone, so I can pull it up on my phone right now and know every family member where so they are. So you're the bad guy in 1984. Yeah. I'm the bad guy, I am a big brother. But I'm the father, so I'm more than a big brother. I'm the patriarch. I want to keep an eye on all my kids. But, but we, we let them get a data plan. So with social media, I've always been no social media. But then my kids, they start, they start hounding me because they are always the last one to get whatever thing that everybody else in school has. My kids go to a Christian private school. And I'm, I'm kind of appalled at what kids are allowed to do by Christian parents at a Christian school. But even in elementary school, all the kids have smartphones. They all have unrestricted internet access to do whatever they want. And I'm like, You've, that's a Trojan horse. But anyway, with social media, I just tell them, like, okay, you've, you've got your phone, but there's no social media. My daughter begged and begged and begged and begged and begged to get Instagram. All my friends are on Instagram. That's how we communicate. Like, I can't find out what's going on, you know, with kids at school because I'm not Instagram. And I kept telling her, you know, we're not going to do this. It's like, as Christians, we're going to obey God. We're going to be weird. And it's okay to be weird. And so finally, that's what she did. Um, she wrote me unprovoked, unprompted by me, she wrote me a two-page essay about here is why I should be able to have Instagram and how I will use it responsibly and how I'll honor God with Instagram. I said, you have passed the test. You may now have Instagram. <laughs> but it was because she had reached a point to where she is so conscious of the need to use this wisely that in a way of, 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 of enabling a child to have social media is, I mean, she was, uh, I believe, 16 at the time. Um, I mean, you have to be aware of the dangers of it. You have to be aware of the temptations, the seductive power of it, the addictive power of it. 
but it's not as though it's evil and you will never in your life have Instagram. I'd rather you get introduced to it and be able to interact with it in a healthy way um, while you're in my home. I don't know if that was the right choice, honestly, um, because I still see that... You want us to take a poll of the audience? <laughs> yeah, audience poll, you know, pull your buzzer out from under your seat and, no, no, I don't want to do that because I'll probably be humiliated. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, in our church, I'm, I have the oldest kids. And so we're the guinea pigs for everybody else. So if it was a terrible idea, I will, I will let my church know, and you can, you can learn from our mistakes, but that's how we handled it. Yeah, so uh, there are times when I feel I'm not mature enough for social media, so I don't know what we're going to do when the time kids start. Yeah, I'm you're not. I'm, I know that. You're, you're kind of immature and childish. I forget my password and have to, like, create a new Facebook every couple of years. <laughs> uh, okay, so with you guys being uh, sort of in the – you're both in Anil Shenvi, you're both uh, – very equipped to talk about the philosophy behind some of the, the CRT stuff and the LGBTQ stuff. What do you think's next? What's coming down the pike that we may not be fully aware of yet? I mean, as an example, Michael told me in a podcast a couple of, uh, maybe it's before the podcast, but a couple of months ago about this minor attracted persons sort of, does anybody know what I'm talking about? So minor attracted persons is the new... Pedophiles. Right. So it's a, it's a uh, uh, sort of academic kind of way to describe getting your jollies with little kids. Um, and so there's at least one book that's been written by a PhD candidate that we, we talked about that is sort of saying we should call them minor attractive persons and it's an accepted identity. It's a legitimate sexual orientation. What do you guys see next along those lines or any others that's coming down? Yeah, I think uh, queer theory is, is where they're really gonna be pushing. Uh, and queer theory is, is a really dark place. Uh, I think we're gonna see a lot of talk about chosen families as we you know they they are so good about redefining um language and so chosen family is the is this idea that your the family you're born into is oppressive that is something that was forced upon you and you need to separate yourself from that family and choose a family that affirms you and so they they look at all children as you know, by default as queer. And it's this, this uh, you know, these genders are put upon them, these families are oppressive, we need to liberate children from their families so that they can find their chosen family. So I think you're really gonna start seeing a push on that um, in some of the, um, you know, family streaming services. There are now categories for chosen family where it highlights people who are not, you know, like chosen family as a category as a category so like on netflix or something or right now is it, that what the chosen is about <laughs> <laughs> who knew i'm glad i never watched that so like something like you know guardians of the galaxy they would say that's a chosen family because these are people who chose each other it's they're, they're not in you know their birth families and and this is you know this is how they can pitch you know, drag shows as family friendly because they don't have the same definition of family as you yeah. do. Oh, yeah. And so what, what I hate about that, and maybe, you, maybe you'd have something to comment on this, Josh, but I hate that they're stealing all of the capital that Christendom has invested in the minds of all of us with the word family. So the word family has all of these positive images that come into our minds of uh, a stability and a street where people take care of their lawns and moms and dads who are faithful to, and all of those mental images, all of that connotation, that didn't just come out of nowhere. Those are fruits that grew on the tree of widely believed Christianity. But now they're stealing all that capital 
And they're saying, hey, you know that thing you like? Will and Grace can do it too. Idea laundering. It's, they're using our terms to smuggle in their ideas. And idea laundering? Idea laundering. Kind of like money laundering. <laughs> oh, I, I got to write that one down. Idea. I love, these, I love these labels, idea laundering. That might show up in my talk yeah. tomorrow. Chase, do you see anything? You're on the cutting edge out there in Colorado, blue state, right? Yeah, I mean, I just saw Washington pass legislation that uh, basically severs families, like parental rights from their kids if their kids wants to go trans. So I think that's going to be more common in blue states is legislation. But with the, uh, with the plus, you know, and all that, what that entails, pedophilia, that kind of thing. I mean, this was in the literature. A lot of the people in the sexual revolution were delving into pedophilia. So it, it wouldn't be surprising. Um, and this is always my argument for people who don't like my tone, and that's fine, go listen to Josh. Or, you know, or like they want to, to continue the winsomeness playbook is fine. Bestiality and pedophilia are now yeah. legal, you know. Do you care? Like, yeah. do you even, do you care? And if you knew that was coming, what would you do today to stop it? Yeah. Uh, because it's just like, that. that's what kind of woke me up. Because, I mean, back in the 90s, the idea of, transgender that was in the secular literature that was still like a mental disorder uh and in christianity that would have been ludicrous yeah you know and now we're here where it's like you know we've got to we've got to talk about these things with the right tone and posture and i'm like what are we doing so yeah i think both of those issues um you know i really don't know which comes first pedophilia or bestiality in the plus um I don't know, but you know, monkeypox was spread to both. So, but um, do you have any pedophiles in your life that can really speak into what it's like in their shoes? Right. We need to learn from the pedophile community. Please stop. About Listen this. and learn. Somebody's going to take what I just anymore. said. They're going to get a clip of that, and they're going to be like, "This is what Christ the King employs." <laughs> um, Michael, I know you feel you feel very strong. I know this about you. We've known each other for a while, but just serving with you in the church now, I see it more and more. You have a very uh, good, strong passion for protecting children, for protecting their innocence. Um, what does that coming down the pike do to you? How does that make you feel? What do you want to do to protect against it? Guns. Okay. That's good. <laughs> Lots of guns. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I do not advocate for violence. Uh, well, maybe I should qualify that. I'm kidding. I think the White House does. So. <laughs> So I, I, I see all of this as aimed at children. The, the image of God um, is in all human beings. Human beings have the ability to multiply, reproduce, which is something that demons are not able to do. And so being haters of the image of God and the expansion of the image of God across the earth was part of the creation mandate from the very beginning. So there is a, a unique target of the image of God amongst our most vulnerable. We see it happen in the womb with abortion, uh, but now the, the cultural expectation that was, was in place maybe 20, 30 years ago was that children must be protected. We need to do things for the sake of the children, but now those words have been redefined to where what protecting the kids means, we protect it from oppressive family structures of mom and dad and the natural family. It's gotta be this chosen family we idea. We protect them by cutting off their genitals. Yeah, we, well, we, we're protecting their identity because we want to affirm them. We don't want them committing suicide, right? So let's let them have whatever sort of surgery and hormone therapy that they think of in order to protect them, to be able to uh, affirm them. But I, I see children are being uniquely targeted and Christian silence on the issue. I love what you said earlier about the silent spiral. 
because that is what happens. It's like whenever Christians don't speak up because of our desire to not give offense to people who would disagree, then they're emboldened by that silence, those that are advocating for these things, and it continues to spiral to where now it's like for Christians to speak up about anything, it's too late. Because we've the cultural narrative has already been totally given over to children can be targeted uh, for um, elimination in the womb or for sexual indoctrination if we assume every child is queer from the beginning and the only reason why we have such things as uh, boys and girls is because they're indoctrinated and conditioned into that by an oppressive family structure. So we assume they're queer um, at birth and then we raise them. I mean there are things like I'm going to raise my children um, gender neutral and let them choose their gender at some point in the future. Um, I've heard of things about, uh, there was a word for it, I can't remember, maybe gentle parenting, something about parenting that I read about even this last week, but I don't remember the label. But the idea is that I'm never going to tell my child no. Um, the child is not going to be told no, they're only going to be given positive, affirming messages. I think the phrase for that is child abuse. That's it is child abuse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but if you're, if you're only giving the child positive messages. So if the child, and the example that I read was um, this parent, you know, needed to, they were playing a game with the kid and the parent needed to go and do something else and the child threw a fit. And so the child, the parent who was in this, this uh, gentle parenting or whatever it was called, they contacted the person who was sort of the, uh, the big thinker, the leader of this movement. So what should I do? And that person said, well, that child is communicating to you that they're not done playing yet. So you need to stay there and play with that child until they tell you they're done. So the whole created order has been turned upside down to where children, which should be under their parents' authority and being raised up, are the ones that are now put in authority. And then the wife is uh, over her husband's authority uh, so that everything has been inverted. And it is the demonic agenda is to completely overturn all of God's good order in, in creation. So I think protecting children is a massive project that can't, it can't be just a little bit here, a little bit there, let me monitor their screen time, let me make sure that they don't go to the drag queen story or at the public library. It is a, it is a comprehensive worldview that children need to be raised in from birth until they're ready to be released into the world. And so I think um, there is a Benedict option that we should, um, as Christians think with our children, we need to make sure that there, there is a, a protection and a, an education that they're provided with throughout their whole life and so that they're able to discern the world and they're able to operate as healthy adults in the future. Some might say, oh, you're, you're sheltering your kids too much. And I, I heard Doug Wilson say this once. He said, well, it's, it's not a bomb shelter, but it is a picnic shelter. Yeah. Um, and there is, there is a need for sheltering. Um, because sheltering is protection. We're protecting children from storms and winds and harmful things. We have to do that as parents. Otherwise, we will lose this generation um, and be even in a worse position. Yeah, my wife and I like to talk about how we've, we've not you know, kept our kids out of public school um, you know, to protect them, but it's a calculated retreat for a future advance. Like, mm. They need to be equipped before they go out into the world and face a lot of these things. You know, we need to instill them with the biblical worldview. They need to be comfortable being weird. They need to, you know, have the, the mindset that is able to discern the truth from a lie. Yeah. And, and just throwing them out there without a ton of discipleship is, um, 
it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Two words on that real quick. One, uh, I used to be a public school teacher. Uh, the, the language that I hear of, like, why are you guys withdrawing from the public school? That assumes that it was the government's job to teach my kids to begin with, and that's a false assumption. Yeah. Uh, a couple months ago, I tweeted, uh, we, don't call it, uh, we don't call it withdrawing from welfare when a guy gets a job. Yeah. <laughs> right? It, it, it's not the government's job to be giving me money to buy food. It's my job to go earn it. Well, it was never the government's job to teach our kids to begin with. That's a false assumption. Um, and then the other thing that when you hear about kids being missionaries, supposedly, we, we don't send our missionaries to China to go sit and be captive for eight hours and indoctrinated. Right? That's what happens when you send your kid to a public school. You're telling them, be quiet and listen to that person as they authoritatively tell you what the world is. That's not being a missionary. Um, and we don't send missionaries out before they're even saved or trained. <laughs> right. Let's send our six-year-olds to China and just have, obviously. Um, so as we, Josh, you're a layman, uh, Chase, you're a pastor. As we have people enter our churches whose lives have been ravaged by transgenderism or feminism or even uh, critical theory, how do we walk them through repentance? How do we walk them through obedience? If they've already had surgeries, if they've already built their lives in such a way where the wife is the primary breadwinner because of feminism, uh, how, do we, how do we walk somebody like that through being a more obedient Christian? I mean, yeah, our attitude, my attitude is um, hopefully the one of Christ with, with patient, enduring, long-suffering as he is with me in my original sin and as I walk a life of repentance. And so with any of those more maybe uh, like very serious issues, it's going to be one of loving somebody patiently. Uh, that's not to endorse, that's not to remain silent, but it is to welcome them to the table in a way that, that if they are truly repentant and walking in obedience and they are in Christ, we are glad to have them. You are, uh, we are not here to shame you. Now, if they are, have not received Christ yet and they're coming to the church and they're open to the gospel message, uh, then eventually there should be a, a level of confrontation with kind of the, if, they, if they've never offended and they've never been confronted with the choices that they've made that they're responsible and culpable for before the living God, then they should receive preaching and teaching that does deal with that. But we had... Um, we had uh, a, a couple, uh, it was a lesbian couple that were married, right? And, uh, and they came to the well, and they came to basically, I think from what I understand, they came to like, uh, re not record us, but like, like get evidence against us. And one of them got saved. Wow. Uh, wow. And so they started talking to Matt, my co-pastor, about it, well, the, the girl who got saved, and then all the lesbian community that they were part of started calling our church. What's your church's stance on this? And still back then, I was fairly in the winsome paradigm, so I was trying to do the whole kind of Rick Warren answer uh, <laughs> back then, but it, that was still not enough for them. It's never going to be enough for them. No. Um, and full endorsement is what they want. But this woman who became a Christian, she was like, no, well, now what do I do? You know? um, and she ended up leaving that so-called marriage and then moving to Florida, where her family was from, because that's because that community was so hostile towards her once she followed Christ. And so that's Praise God. our attitude, yeah, for sure. Um, but our attitude has been, if you're 
If you are a Christian and you believe in Jesus Christ and you trust in him, we call you to repentance and obedience, and we also want you to confess your sins and find assurance in him. And we have a long-suffering attitude just like Christ does with me. So that's our attitude. Yeah, I think um, it's going to require a ton of wisdom. Um, you know, just two weeks ago at the time of this recording was um, the Nashville shooting. And, you know, I'm not convinced that, you know, I, I think churches need to take care of security and make sure that there's some armed people. Um, we have armed people here, right? There's at least one. Of them. All right. <laughs> um, but I think, I think the church is going to come under attack in other ways. I think you're going to start seeing people attending with their transgender child that are not interested in learning, you know, being part of a church, but they're interested in, you know, they're the wolves coming in. That, yeah. And so it's going to require a ton of wisdom, a ton of conversations to see, okay, are these people actually seeking the Lord? Is this, is this, are they open to the gospel? Are they truly wanting to figure out, you know, the situation they're in? Or are they there in order to start, you know, shaping the way Christians think about this? Because we know, oh, they're so nice and they're so, they're, you know, our, our best volunteers. Well, there may be a reason they're your best volunteers. Yeah. I love how we've assumed niceness is the paramount of Christian virtue. If somebody's nice, like they're obviously holy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think this is actually a big issue. Uh, I think Josh and I have talked about it. We, uh, with someone who comes to your church that's openly dressing as the opposite sex, yeah. and it's really interesting, I, I still haven't found resolution other than that. I always want to go to the Word of God. The Word of God does give instruction on dress and what's appropriate. And I think an earlier version of me was very reticent to, you know, ever be perceived as heavy-handed or too legalistic on these matters. Um, and I would have used Bible verses about, you know, Jesus encountering prostitutes and all this kind of thing. So anytime somebody would come to our church, uh, perhaps a woman who's a college girl dressed in uh, provocative clothing, I was very hesitant to ever be like, well, she's here, you know, so let's not mm -hmm. offend and turn away. And that, that method that I had uh, would be not prudent anymore, which makes me reevaluate my method back then as non-prudent. But like, if somebody's openly cross-dressing at your church, at what point right. do you go, yeah, you shouldn't do that here in our worship service. That's yeah. That's not biblical. And that really speaks to uh, really our inability to understand those household codes in Ephesians and other places about dress and, you know, adornment and that kind of thing. We've just, we've really, especially in the church planning movements I've been part of and the evangelical tribe I've been part of, there's just not a lot of teaching on that. Like, what does it mean yeah. when, when we talk about short hair, long hair, jewelry, these kind of things? Mm -hmm. What does that all mean? Um, and so I think there needs to be more writing, research, and teaching on those kind of topics. Yeah, I think one distinction that is really important to make for every Christian is to distinguish between an activist and an individual, um, or activist and an ideology and an individual. Whenever we're dealing with ideologies or activists, these are people that are, um, Joe Rigney referred to them as apostles from the world into your church. Mm -hmm. So it's like they were sent into your church and they're there 
to make change. They're there as activists. They're there to test, to like, like these ladies came, I mean, and praise God for the woman that gave her life to Christ. Um, but whenever they come, the, there's an agenda and it is to be on the offensive and to put the church on the defensive. Um, and then there are other people, and it may, you may not be able to just tell them apart initially, but there may be other people that are genuinely desiring to understand the Christian faith, to explore. They might be uh, what we might call a seeker. There's um, a person that I've gotten to know, and I've never met in person, but I've gotten to know online and have interacted with a good bit. Um, and initially, um, it's a young man who was commenting on some of the posts that I would make on Twitter, and I could tell there was some curiosity, some interest, some pushback, but not a total rejection. And so we would interact back and forth, and eventually he said, okay, listen, I'm, um, I'm de-transitioning. Mm. Um, I became a Christian um, in the last few months, Amen. and I am... I'm really trying to figure this out. So he's asking questions about Calvinism and uh, understanding sexuality. And so with that, with that man, um, I, I try to encourage and spur him on. I'm like, brother, like, I, I applaud you. You are doing a difficult work of repentance. You are coming out of a very uh, totalizing worldview. Praise God, press on. And I try to encourage him. He's sent me some poetry he's written, just his, some psalms of sort of things. And I'm like, for that man, like, there is total compassion, Absolutely. total uh, gentleness and speaking tenderly to somebody like that, because this is a man who is humble and wanting to walk with Jesus. Now, there may be some other person who is an activist who wants to not only wear the clothing of the opposite sex, but wear the clothing of a victim. I'm oppressed, and then Christians are very eager to jump to their aid. Like, how dare you um, say something that sounds condemning or harsh or direct um, or plain spoken? Because they they conflate the two categories. They they think that to condemn a lifestyle, an ideology that is demonic and is targeting children. They will think that what, what you're doing is you are standing over an individual person who is humble and wanting to seek the Lord, but you're standing over them laughing and mocking and condemning and yeah. scorning that person. I'm like, no, no, these are different types of people, different things going on. And so we've had in this building, in this church, at a worship service, a dude walk in, high heels, skirt, long hair, the whole deal. Um, it was not obvious. Like... Are you here to, because you, you want to know about the Christian faith? Or are you here to put us to the test? And you're wanting to see and look in judgment. Are these, are these, these judgy Christians? Are they going to affirm me? Are they going to accept me? And the only way to know is to talk to them and to, to find out. And you respond accordingly. And that does take a lot of skill and wisdom. Yeah. But it's not just a, we always have to speak the same way to everybody. I think Michael is going to be talking about that different voices this afternoon. I think also what both of you, the example you guys are giving of the trans of a man coming into our church wearing women's clothing, what that reveals is that hypothetical situation reveals that we're only scared and timid in a leftward direction. So if a guy comes in and he's visited our church for a few weeks and he's wearing a Confederate flag shirt, Oh, so get him out of here. We're, most of us are going to have zero problem here. saying, hey, buddy, come here, listen. Uh, God hates racism, and, and I'm glad you're here, but you can't be wearing that shirt in here. We're going to have zero problem having that conversation. But the guy wearing the dress, well, I mean, we don't want to be unloving. 
So what's the difference there? It's that the elites of our day and place, the elites of America are leaning left. And so there is more cost to opposing a sin that is on the left side of the political spectrum than there is one. Nobody is afraid of the Appalachian Trump voter living in a trailer park. So we can bash on the sins on that side of the political spectrum uh, as much as we want. I think what they would say, though, is those on the right, those are the oppressors. And those on the left, those are the victims. They are the oppressed. Which, by the way, itself assumes that that somehow tells me something ontological. Oppressor is holy and... Or, I'm sorry, oppressor is the, 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 uh, the, the, the sinner, the, the wicked, oh, and, and the oppressed one is holy. Right. Which, so that, that reveals Marxism yeah. has gotten in, like, way down into the assumptions of even an evangelical's thinking. Yeah. And I have to be purged of it. I'm not immune to it. I went to public school just like the rest of us. Yeah. Well, okay, all right. I went to public school like those of us who are still somewhat Marxist in our subconscious and have to, be, <laughs> have to repent of it. Um, let me ask a, a question here about, so Christian nationalism obviously is uh, the boogeyman, I think, to most of our evangelical overlords. Um, whether you call yourself a Christian nationalist or not, do you see any use in labels like that or theonomist? Or do you want to keep your distance from labels that other people created? Uh, what, what is the use of identifying or not identifying with some of these labels that float around our tribe? I've heard someone say Christian federalism may be a good solution, so maybe <laughs> he wants to talk about that. <laughs> I'm, you know, I go back and forth. Um, on the one hand, I, I, I don't like recoiling from everything that the left throws at us. And on, on some things, you know, when the left calls us racist, I'm not going to say, yeah, yeah, you're right, I'm a racist. <laughs> Let's not clip that out of context. Yeah, <laughs> um, but with Christian nationalists, you know, I get the impulse to say, yeah, I want the nation to be Christian. I, okay, great, yeah, guilty as charged. Um, but I, I, I also want to caution on becoming so concerned about what we call it that we get into these endless debates over the name. Like I look at guys like Chris Rufo and what DeSantis is doing down in Florida. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look anything different than what my Christian nationalism would look like. Like I want to govern from a Christian moral framework. Yeah. And if I can, you know, if we can move the ball forward on that and just, you know, convince Christians to vote according to their moral framework and to, to you know, exercise power when we hold it, then great. I don't care what we call it. You know, if, if Christian nationalism catches on, great. I'm a Christian nationalist. But if... They're going to clip that too. Yeah, you know. <laughs> what else can I add to the list? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, it's an interesting political theology. Um, and I have a lot of friends that delve into it. I've read the book. It received very strange criticisms from certain evangelical elite that seemed to be very coordinated. Um, and so that made me very suspicious. It also makes me suspicious that it's been a slur used by the left for two decades now. Um, but just as a general principle for me and my own story, because I adopted all the lingo, missional, gospel-centered, all yeah. this stuff, right? So I'm just very reluctant at this point to adopt logo, or s slogans 
to describe it, even though, uh, you know, if you are a Christian and you think it would be good for people to be Christian and a nation to be more Christian, just like we would want a missionary in China to pray for the revival of that nation, yeah. then, you know, you will be labeled that. And so you just kind of have to embrace the reality that, like, that's the label, even though, like, I don't think for, you know, Christ the King, it's going to be like, we're a Christian nationalist church. Like, that's just not, I, mean, I think it, it's a, it's a silly thing to fall into because it'd be like saying we're like we're a Republican church, we're a Democrat church. It's like they're both like Republicans are just twenty years behind Democrats. And so like I just don't think using a political theology label to describe your church is gonna be prudent uh, at this point. And I think what's more important than necessarily the labels is going back to the tradition, to the Protestant tradition, and looking at the sources. And really getting in touch with the problems with liberalism, a lot of the talk that we're talking about with transgenderism and these other issues of the sexual revolution are simply kind of the, the end of the line for liberalism. And so this is the fruit. And actually Keller has written on this before in a helpful way in terms of kind of the American ideal of the, the free self, you know, freedom. And so on the right, it's more of a libertarian attitude, a lack of care for others, uh, uh, kind of like, just leave me alone, right? And so I still see a lot of conservatives kind of falling into that, uh, the liberty paradigm of what a good relationship between family, church, state looks like. And I think it's more important to go back to those sources and go like, hey, like if this is where liberalism ends, right? And this is the end of it. What did they, what else is out there? Because there's, and there's a lot of people interested in that conversation today because they do see the problems. And that's actually in a very, uh, can be a very helpful apologetic method in more secular context because they do, a lot of people do see those problems with liberalism. So I just think it's, yeah. I'm not one, I, I tend to be one that eschews labels anyways, but especially with my own story and my own development as a man uh, in theology and a pastor, I'm just less, but I'm also not afraid of like, like if, if, like Josh had, if this is what you're going to call me, I guess, yeah, call me that. I don't, I'm not going to be that worked up about, oh, you know, oh, I can't be that just because, you know, the, the regime evangelicals are so scared of it. That is a good caution. Uh, somebody remind me to get the Christ the King Christian Nationalist signs canceled. We won't order those. <laughs> uh, but it, you're, you're right that, that classical liberalism led to something that I don't think, you know, the 19th century or 18th century classical liberals themselves would have seen. And it's like with smoking, we realized it caused cancer. And we're like, well, maybe we shouldn't, you know, smoke as much. But with classical liberalism, it's like this, you can't touch it. You can't critique it. Uh, it seems like that, I get that vibe from David French where it's like, you, you cannot attack the sort of separation of church and state, uh, free liberty kind of, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's untouchable. Um, I think it, on the, for Christians, the, the pietism is, is the heart of the problem because we, um, influenced by men like Jonathan Edwards, which the religious affections is my favorite Christian book of all time. Not the Jonathan Edwards who like ran for president 10 years ago. No, and not the John Edwards that was like the psychic guy. Remember okay. that guy? Yeah, there is. So there's He's a like different a, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, they have, like, evidently it's a common name. Uh, you may not have known, but I, the racist one. Yes. Ra <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now I know. Yeah. I learned about him in middle school. <laughs> No, but I, so, but but he is a um, a big influencer of Pietism in that heart religion became the the key impulse of evangelicals. So we see the true religious conversion, true um, duty, true piety is all a matter of the heart, which 
in itself is, I, I think it's a true concept, but it is left there and it must be exclusively there. So anytime your inner heart religion might lead you to some external piety towards your nation or to your city or whatever, then that's more of a problem because you know, it, it just needs to be what's going on in your heart. Jesus is Lord of my heart, not Jesus, Washington, D.C. Correct. So that, that's the, the theological, um, there's a theological problem there. There is also a theological problem with just what does Jesus command us to do to disciple the nations? Um, Jesus is king. He is Lord. What does that mean? But that dovetails with just some more practical problems or inconsistencies. So we believe we have Christian homes. Um, and that we want, even though one's children may not be converted, that doesn't mean that we don't raise them to believe in Jesus. And so there's a, we want a Christian home. Um, we have Christian churches, but it, it kind of has to stop there, right? Yeah. And even I've, I've heard some people point out the inconsistencies between, like, we want to be in the city for the city. We want to be pro-city. We want to transform the city. But we can't can't take it any any step beyond that. We can't. We don't want it. We can't transform our, our nation, but we can transform our city. Well, why? Why? Why does that have to be different? And for that matter, why would we not want to blanket the whole world with with nations and peoples that all give glory and praise to God? I mean, I read that in Revelation five. Why not? Um, Christian theology gives us the liberalism that we prize, and if we remove the Christianity from it, we're not going to end up with a true liberalism where there is freedom. That's where you're going to get more laws, more oppression, because no other worldview is hospitable to that kind of freedom. Yeah, we're all standing in a house Christianity built, and we're trying to get Christianity out of it, and we're just hoping the house will still stand, and it won't, and you can see it on TikTok. Yeah. Um, I'd love to, so we've got about 10 minutes left. I'd love to end on a note of hope. Could each of you guys, I'll, I'll go last, but could each of you guys give us some make us feel a little better. Make us feel like we don't need to move to Wyoming, build a bomb shelter, buy a bunch of gold. Like what, it's, it's not all, I'm, you're post-mill, right, aren't you? Okay, all right, well, I'm post-mill. Um, even though, even you guys who are on-mill, <laughs> give us a note of hope. Well, I can go first. I, I, my note of hope is that, um, is, is things like this. Whenever, I feel more hopeless whenever I feel isolated, alone, like I'm the only one that, I feel like has some sane, rational thoughts. Doing stuff like this makes me very hopeful. So last night, I, I mentioned last night, I, when I got home, it's like I had a hard time sleeping. It's because I was just so excited, so built up, so encouraged by being around other brothers and sisters that uh, we can come together and talk about things that we value that are important in a way that we're not having to apologize or worry about offending somebody. But we could say, hey, this is, we believe Jesus is king. We believe Jesus died not merely to convert hearts so that we can um, be more prayerful and, and that sort of thing, which all that is good, but Jesus rules, he reigns. And what our eschatology points to is uh, Jesus ruling over every nation, Every tribe, every tongue will bow the knee to King Jesus. That, that gives me hope when I'm around other people who hold that same conviction. We want to drive towards it and we want to speak truth in a world that is an active, open, high-handed rebellion against it. So all of you in this room, all of you people that listen to this podcast and are not just trolling us, um, that gives me a lot of hope. 
Yeah, um, as someone who's been in these conversations for quite a while, um, it was a very lonely place in 2017. Um, and it's the, yeah, the landscape has changed quite a bit. There's the fact that we're having this conference and there's people that show up is very encouraging. Um, and, I, you know, I think the biggest thing, the biggest thing I'm excited about this moment is that there is an openness to the gospel mm -hmm. in yeah. people that you would not expect it from. And, it, I, I, you know, I said in my talk, you know, I, if we're so focused on reaching kind of the, you know, the person we've imagined non-Christians to be, we're going to miss the opportunities that are in, in you know, the strangest places. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm just excited. I think the field is, is white for harvest and, you know, let's get busy. Let's do something about it. Yeah, I think I'm most hopeful uh, regarding the church, uh, particularly our church. You know, once you as a leader, as a pastor, as a Christian, you know, start speaking clearly on these matters, um, you start teaching the Bible on these things, and you have a group of people that um, you can roll with, that, that you're walking in humility before one another and before the Lord, it, it instills in me a great deal of hope. And I see a lot of churches doing this um, who are maybe have veered in different directions, have flirted with attractional church methods and that kind of thing, but they're trying to remain faithful. And once you get your, especially at the elder level, that's the biggest thing. Like I was thinking about the thing we talked about earlier with, uh, with um, the man dressed as a woman showing up at your service. Well, a good elder is going to know this is my responsibility, right? And what great hope I have in my own church to know that I have other elders that, like, it's not just me, it's us, and it's the whole church, and there's not going to be a lot of chaos, because why is Chase talking to that person? You know, everybody's pretty, like, we understand at this point, you know, where we're at. And so I think there's a lot of churches like that, and I think that um, the church is undefeated. I love the quote um, from the Reformation that the, the church is the anvil on which the nations, the hammer of the nations breaks. Uh, because the, the church of God is beautiful and it's the bride of Christ. And what a privilege it is to serve the bride, to lead the bride. And uh, there's a great bunch of great churches out there that are walking faithfully and speaking plainly and clearly right now. So I'm very hopeful for that. That's awesome. Uh, so I'll, I'll give mine as this. Uh, we as Bible-believing Christians are going with the grain of creation, while the rest of uh, secular society in the West seems to be going against, the, not seems to be, they are going against the grain of creation. Darwin was wrong. God actually did make the first pair of human beings, and we are all made by him and knit together in our mother's wombs by him. And Christians are the ones who are getting married and having children and um, building households. I was thinking just now, there's uh, four guys here who are in some role of leadership at the church, and between us we have 12, uh, we have 20 children between the four of us, right? So, I mean, most of my liberal friends have one child, if any, and they drive around that one child in their little Prius, and they'll probably get divorced in 10 years. And I mean, like, if, if we continue to read and believe the Bible and, and follow the God of the Bible, I think in 50 years you're going to see a lot of fruit that was built uh, in the Christian sphere by God's grace that the world won't have done. 
we, we will have out, outrun them because we are running in the direction of the God who actually does govern the world. So Christians, be encouraged. Uh, we'll end with a song here before our lunch break, but uh, I just want you to know that God actually does govern the world we live in, and he governs it well. Obey him. Uh, all right. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys.